Gracious God, we thank you for the great gift of another day. We thank you for the beauty of creation and the beauty of the weather we're experiencing. And we pray that that beauty would shine forth, not just in weather patterns, but in the whole world, that there would be beauty in society, beauty in healthcare, beauty in politics, beauty in church, that beauty would somehow permeate every inch of your creation. And we pray that we would look for beauty and see snippets of it wherever we look. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. Today we have a fun story, and we'll be talking about the Apostles' testimony and Ananias. So I'll go ahead and start reading. Now, we recall last time that Peter and John healed the man who was begging by the beautiful gate of the temple, and this healing has got them in a little bit of trouble. So I'll go ahead and start. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came to them, much annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus there is the resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening, but many of those who heard the word believed, and they numbered about 5,000. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had made prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired by what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who was sick and are asked how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. I'll stop there. Let me just say a few words first. Peter and John are interrupted while they are speaking to the people. And so Peter and John begin their ministry of preaching. They are witnesses to the resurrection as Jesus asked them to be. And while they are speaking, they are interrupted. So I want you to imagine me preaching in front of St. Michael's and the bishop and an army of priests comes to remove me during my sermon to question me in my teaching. That's kind of the scene that's been set up. And there's a lot of people banding together. We have the Sadducees coupled with other rulers. And to remind everyone, the Sadducees were a sect of Judaism that did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, unlike the Pharisees. So the Sadducees might have had some understanding of the afterlife, but they didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. And so they're the ones who come to Jesus with that goofy test of a man died and had six brothers and, you know, each of the brothers married his wife and then all seven of them died. And in the resurrection, you know, who will she be married to? That was their test. Uh, and the reason they had this silly test was because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so Everyone's kind of annoyed for different reasons. The Sadducees are annoyed because the apostles are teaching that in Jesus there's resurrection. And other people are annoyed because of the teaching about Jesus himself. And so everyone's really banding together to shut Peter and John up because they are causing a commotion and the leaders, the priests, the captain of the temple are not really in favor of this. Um, but we're told in verse four that many of those who heard the word believe. This is the power of the Spirit. And so we started with about 120 people at the very beginning of Acts, and now we're up to about 5,000. And it really raises the question because of the parallel nature of Luke and Acts, 
whether or not this 5,000 is meant to mirror the feeding of the 5,000 with the loaves and the fishes. That's just a, a question, a conjecture we can make. In the same way that previously Jesus fed with bread and fish, are the apostles doing that same work by nourishing people with the gospel? Is there a connection, a symbolic thread between the 5,000 being fed by the word of God and the 5,000 men fed by the five loaves and two fish? In verse 5, we're told that the next day that everyone kind of gets together and James, I'm sorry, Peter and John have to stand in the midst of these authorities. And I think the point I want to make is that this is the same kangaroo court, the exact same people, exact same rulers, exact same elders, who only two months earlier had Jesus stand before them. And so this is kind of fulfilling the prophecy that what happened to Jesus will happen to you. Um, not a lot has changed. Remember, the crucifixion happened about two months ago. So these are the same people. And in the same way that they didn't have room for Jesus and his proclamation of the kingdom of God, now that Peter and John are doing the same healings and filled with the same spirit, they want to put an end to it. And they really ask a question that's very convenient. Um, whether or not they actually spoke these words or not, who knows, but it's very convenient for Luke's purpose. By what power or by what name do you do this? It's kind of a funny way of asking that question. And of course, this is Peter's opportunity now that they've teed it up to say by the power of the Spirit and by the name of Jesus Christ. The emphasis in verse 8 of Peter being filled with the Spirit is very, very important as the Holy Spirit is a main character in the book of Acts. And I want you to note in verse 10 that the man standing before you in good health is by the name of Jesus Christ. Two things I want to point out there that for Luke, salvation is two things. It is the forgiveness of sins, but it's also the restoration of health, physical health, emotional health, mental health, psychological health. And although that full restoration of health doesn't always happen in this lifetime, it's important to know that Luke envisions salvation, not just as forgiveness, the taking away of something such as sin, but as the presence of something such as health. And so this idea of being in good health is an image of salvation. And then we have this whole idea of the name of Jesus Christ. And we recall that Moses wanted to know the name of God and God would not really tell Moses his name. He said, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. And Moses was able to look at God's backside, you know, as he hid in the cleft of the rock. But now part of what's being revealed is that we know the name of God, um, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And symbolically speaking, part of what's being suggested is that which previously was hidden is now being revealed. This happened by the name of Jesus of Nazareth and this whole biblical idea of names and do we know God's name is all in the backdrop of verse 10. And then this is really the tricky part and something that's just part of the narrative, especially at the beginning of Acts, the crucifixion is personal. Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, um, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. Not the stone the builders rejected, but the stone rejected by you, the builders. And so part of what Peter is doing here is saying to this kangaroo court, y'all had a role in this and you need to repent. And of course, we can talk about you know, how we feel about that. Um, Peter's track record at the crucifixion wasn't perfect. We recall that Peter chopped off someone's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane and denied Jesus three consecutive times. But, you know, now Peter's all filled with the Spirit. He says, you crucified him. Um, and certainly what Peter is doing, or perhaps more accurately, what Luke is doing through Peter is trying to fulfill the prophecy of that psalm and to give meaning to that psalm, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so I'll go ahead and stop there and see what thoughts are swimming around in your head and what questions you have. And Mary's ready to go. I see a raised hand. 
Well, it's a question. It's an aha. And it is the fact that this, right on this verse 12, the end of it says, by which we must be saved, as opposed to by which we may be saved. And that was an aha for me. It's, it means it's got to happen. And so I just would love some comment on that. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. So you're... It, it sounds like everyone will be saved as opposed to may. The must versus a may. And I, that's, it just jumped out at me this time. And I, I don't know exactly why, but that's... I so do you kind of hear it almost as a word of hope of... No, you I must think it can be. <laughs> Unless you're a Unitarian. <laughs> but that's it. And that's the thing. Cause, and it also goes, I mean, is that we, he's answering that we must be saved, but it's not. He, this, this is to everybody, I think. I don't know. So that, I'm asking for you to comment. I, I, it jumped at me. That's all. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not sure I have too much to add to the text that's already there. Only to say, you know, looking at this from Luke's perspective, who's writing this, and from the apostles' perspective, Jesus, for Luke and for Christians, is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And so, in the previous reading, Peter talked about how the crucifixion was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, that the cross, the resurrection, was always the way that God was going to fulfill God's covenant to the people of Israel, not just to save them, but to open the whole thing up to all the Gentiles as well, to all the nations, so that God's election wasn't exclusive, but universal. That the point was always for God's salvation to be universal, open to all, meant for everybody. And that the election or choice of Israel was a choice of where God was going to intervene so as to open the whole thing up, that God started with a particular to expand to the universal. And so what Peter wants the leaders to see is that the religion they inhabit and the election that they enjoy and God's choice of them was never meant to be enjoyed exclusively by them but that the covenant was always through them for the whole world. And so this is really important to Peter that they get this because this was the point all along from Peter's perspective. And if they miss this, they miss the whole thing. And so I think that's really the thrust of what Peter's trying to articulate, that this good news was always for the world and that the stone the builders rejected, right? was always meant to open things up to everybody. So it can sound a little harsh and you can read it a lot of different ways, but it's actually a deeply hopeful message that Peter's trying to articulate here. I, I can see that now very much because the first part, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, it has become the corners. That's accusing this same, again, kangaroo court. So that in itself is throwing it right at them. But to come back with this next part of it, is the hope and that's strong because he's 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 talking to the same group of rulers uh priestly high priests and all so so maybe it's the we i should have been worried about <laughs> yeah it's good thank you yeah which well, is one one note though about this who rejected jesus who handed jesus over um there's a greek word called uh paradidomai that's the greek it means to hand over and it's the word that's used in reference to Jesus being handed over to death. And so the question is, if you read the New Testament in Greek, who's the subject that paradidomide Jesus to the authorities, right? And what's interesting is that if you read the whole narrative of the New Testament, all the Gospels, Paul, everything, this is what it says. It says that we handed Jesus over that the leaders handed Jesus over, that the Romans handed Jesus over, that God handed Jesus over, that Jesus handed himself over. So who paradidomide Jesus? Jesus, God, you, me, the Jewish leaders, the Roman authorities. 
And so that's a really important thing to keep in mind whenever we read any passage that seems to cast blame about the crucifixion. And so again, this isn't so much Peter saying, hey, you guys really, really messed up. It's to say, hey, God is really, really faithful. <laughs> and this is how it happened. So why don't we go ahead and believe and get on board with how the covenant's moving forward? Gail? Gail? I think I'm messed up. It gives me hope because we've seen him bumbling around through uh, much of his time with Jesus. And here he couldn't have said it better. And, you know, it really is uh, a transformation by the Holy Spirit. Well said. That is exactly what Luke wants you to see. There's pre-Pentecost Peter and there's post-Pentecost Peter. And pre-Pentecost Peter, I mean, you know, he didn't get anything right. I mean, he just, he doesn't. He doesn't get anything right. I mean, there's this one moment where uh, I, I put a positive spin on Peter stepping out of the boat and walking on water. But uh, other than that, you know, he doesn't seem to get much right. But then after the spirit comes, he's the chief evangelist and he speaks with power, with clarity and with authority. And that transformation is part of what Luke wants you to see. John? Yeah. yeah. yeah I have, so was this the Sanhedrin, the, the rulers, elders? Was that the Sanhedrin that is the group of uh, the scribes and elders and all that were gathered together, the kangaroo court? I believe the answer to that question is yes. Okay. And would have Paul been there, Saul? Oh, at this moment, no, because I think Luke would have mentioned him by name. The first time we're going to see Saul was at the stoning of Stephen. Okay. And so okay. if you recall, or we'll see in a few chapters, um, once Stephen is stoned, who's the commander basically saying, good job, everybody? Mm -hmm. It's Saul. Saul is really the executioner. Yeah. So the story of Saul, the executioner, becoming the chief apostle, uh, we're going to see that in a few chapters. But Saul hasn't shown up yet. Okay, thank you. More hope for all of us. Also, who are, who are John and Alexander? I mean, I, that are mentioned along with Caiaphas and Annas. They seem to be members of the high priestly family. I don't know much about. Okay, yeah. that's all. Yeah. Thank you. But I, I do want to name, I mean, Luke knows who they are. And so it, this is just an interesting example, right, of information that the New Testament writers have that we might have lost sight of. Like he assumes people knew about John and Alexander, you know, and we've kind of forgotten about them. Uh, I love in the Gospel of Mark, uh, there's this reference to the sons of Rufus. Who on earth was Rufus? Mark certainly knew, and Mark's community knew Rufus, you know, otherwise he wouldn't have referenced the sons of Rufus, but we don't know much about Rufus today. So Rufus was a big player in the early church, and so were his sons. But so it, it's just one of those things that uh, the New Testament writers often have these great insights into history that we have to pick up the fragments and then kind of recreate. Yeah. Rufus was my grandfather and my uncle. Okay. Um, I, I'm, I'm guessing they were different Rufuses, and I don't even know what the plural of Rufus is, uh, but I'm guessing they were different Rufuses. Rufi. <laughs> yeah. There were two. Time travelers. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and uh, keep reading here. Um, so we're still with the kangaroo court, and this is what Luke says. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men. They were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. When they saw the man who had been cured standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they ordered them to leave the council while they discussed the matter with one another. They said, what will we do with them? For it's obvious to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable sign has been done through them. We cannot deny it. But to keep it from spreading further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, 
whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them again, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all of them praised God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign had been performed was more than 40 years old. Okay, a few things. First is the emphasis of Peter and John being uneducated and ordinary men. Uh, there was a question in the Sunday Bible study. Someone asked, you know, about their credentials for teaching, and uh, it was a good teaching opportunity for me to remind people that Jesus did not call anyone with rabbinic training. He didn't go to other rabbis and find the best and the brightest students. He found uneducated and ordinary men, not to mention women and children, and said, you be my apostles and you be my disciples. Because again, the force and the power for our witness isn't found in study. It's not found in knowing the Torah backwards and forwards, but rather in knowing Jesus, accepting our assignment to be his witness, and then being filled with the Holy Spirit. And the leaders are amazed uh, at what they see, and they don't know what to say. Luke tells us they had nothing to say in opposition, nor can they deny what happened. And yet, even though the healing is very plain to them, they do want to keep it from spreading further among the people. And from their perspective, you know, you might ask, well, what on earth is going on? If We've, we've lost your audio. Yeah. Okay, sorry about that. It switched over to my AirPods. Um, and so from their perspective, the question is, why would they try to stop something when this healing has happened? And, you know, that's a question that you have as much insight into as I do. Um, but they were concerned really about two things. One is they didn't want to lose their power. You know, this new manifestation of the spirit is a threat to um, the whole idea of um, the leadership they exercise, you know, because these people are not uneducated and they're not ordinary men. They're special men with lots of education and they worked hard uh, or had some luck to get where they were. And so they don't want to lose their power, but they also don't want this movement to cause a big stir and to further elicit the anger of the Romans against them. They want to live their faith with peace and quietness. Um, and so they tell Peter and John, you know, you got to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And they don't yet realize the full gravity of what's happening. They think that this is just like uh, a nuance in Judaism as opposed to a revolution in faith. And so they say, you know, keep on preaching and teaching. Let's just not use the name of Jesus anymore. And Peter and John are answering, well, that's impossible because the name of Jesus is the whole idea. Uh, we have to speak about what we've seen and heard because their assignment is to be a witness. And so there's a little bit of a gap here between the religious leaders and what they think is happening and what John and Peter understand to be happening. The religious authorities, they try to like find a middle way. They say, okay, you know, keep preaching, keep teaching, but if you can, uh, tone it down a little bit and let's stop using the name of Jesus. And Peter and John say, no, we have to obey God. We cannot keep from speaking about what we've seen and heard. And this whole, we cannot keep from speaking uh, is going to be um, a big um, um, theme of what it means to be filled by the Spirit. Rhoda, I see you have a question. It just struck me while you were talking, you were talking about Moses and not being able to use God's name. And now the kangaroo court is telling them not to use Jesus' name, but they say they have to. It's kind of like in opposition. Now say that again. Um, the, you kangaroo were talking about in the, old the kangaroo court is saying you cannot preach in the name of Jesus. Right. And, and back in the Old Testament, you mentioned um, God saying to Moses, don't use my name. It, uh, just, it was just so There a is a difference, though. The difference is this, that in the Old Testament, 
God does not tell us God's name. I mean, what God says is, my name is I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. Um, um, devout Jews would not even pronounce the name of God. So we, um, you know, we tend to fill in and make up the vowels. There weren't vowels in the early uh, Hebrew language. And so um, we will insert an, an A, um, Yahweh is kind of how we'll often um, guests and fill in the vowels. And, you know, even I hesitate even to pronounce out at, out of respect for our Jewish brothers and sisters, but we don't know how that name was pronounced, but they wouldn't pronounce it. You don't even pronounce the name of God because it's too holy. Um, and here what's being emphasized is the name of Jesus is accessible. We are to speak the name of Jesus. We are to know the name of Jesus. And so I think it's something akin to the same teaching on the spirit, whereas in the Old Testament, the spirit was only for a few. Moses had the spirit. The 70 elders had the spirit for a brief moment in time. But now the spirit is being poured open upon all. In a similar way, the name of God, you know, if, if you touch the mountain in the Old Testament, you die. You know, stay away. Holiness is dangerous in the Old Testament. And now there's something accessible. We know the name of God. God has come to us. The difference with the authorities not wanting Peter and John to speak the name of Jesus is not because the name of God is too holy, but rather because they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So there is a difference. Yeah. And it does sound like blasphemy to them. I mean, it does sound like blasphemy to them, and, and Stephen's going to be stoned on the grounds of blasphemy. And so for devout Jewish Orthodox ears, that's kind of the line that they're getting too close to, blasphemy. All right, take note. Oh, she's come. Because I know that y'all are gonna have questions. And uh, even though I don't time these uh, Bible studies to have anything to do with stewardship, now that it occurs to me, this is a really perfect stewardship text. <laughs> And uh, we can kind of draw out the implications for generosity here. Um, okay. Now, the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us. You lied to God. Now, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard it. The young men came and wrapped up his body and then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead. So they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. Okay. I'm just going to share a few things because I think that this is something we need to talk about here. And you don't need to hear me talk about it. 
Um, but I do want to emphasize a few things. First, this re-emphasis of the early church being of one heart and soul, where people don't claim private ownership of any possessions and everything is held in common. And one of the things that we asked last time was, is this an overly nostalgic or idealistic image of the church? How long did this last? Is such an ethic possible today? If not, what does it look like? And all those questions are still on the table, and we'll just kind of mark those for our conversation. But the point is in verse 33 that great grace was upon them all, and that what is happening is so powerful that it is inciting this sort of response. And I think it's really important to name that Luke is really killing two birds with one stone here and describing the early church in this particular way. Because remember Luke's intent is to, on the one hand, make the Christian faith credible to the Roman authorities so that they don't view this movement as some new crazy um, uh, religion that needs to be suppressed, but rather as the continuation of the people of Israel, right? Because Jews tolerated ancient religions. And so he has to appeal to Greek culture, but he also has to root everything he does, not in Hellenistic philosophy, but in the scriptures of Israel. And so he has very clever ways of doing this. And so it's important to point out that this description of the early church does two things. On the one hand, it perfectly fulfills the Hellenistic ideal of what friendship is. Now, we can't really go into the, re the, the writings of Plato and Aristotle and all the kind of the Greek philosophy, but this idea of friends sharing things in common was a popular Greek Hellenistic ideal. And so the Romans see that, they're like, okay, that's good. But at the same time, this whole business about there not being a needy person among them, um, that's a clear reference to the book of Deuteronomy and the Torah, where the Israelites uh, are to care for the poor. And so there's a lot here in this image, and it fulfills not just the scriptures, but it also lives up to a Hellenistic ideal of what friendship is. Now, all that said, that's just kind of a precursor to these two examples, one good, one bad, of what this looks like. Let's start with the good. There's a Levite uh, by the name of Joseph who basically sells a field, and it no longer belongs to him. He takes all the money, and he lays it at the apostles' feet. He basically says, not my will, but thy will be done. Uh, I am here to serve as the church. Here are my resources, and they belong to the church now. But then we have this story. It's kind of like the opposite of this, uh, which is Ananias and Sapphira. And we're told that they're in this together. You know, Luke, that makes that very clear with the consent of Sapphira, that they really talked about this and they did this together. So this is not an accident or an oops, but this is a very intentional decision they make to sell their land, to give some of the proceeds, to hold some of it back, and then to lie about that. So the question is, what is their sin? Um, and the sin is not, according to Luke, that they are failing to live into the ideal. Um, what does Peter say? He says in verse four, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, um, Christians don't have to sell their property and give them to the apostles to be Christians. That's actually the point of verse four, that this is not mandatory behavior, that not everyone is actually doing this, that you don't have to sell your house and give it to the church to be a Christian. This is not mandated by the apostles. People are voluntarily doing this, motivated by the Spirit. Um, and so their sin is not that they fail to live into the ideal but rather that they fail to see the church as the place where the Spirit of God is active. And that, um, you know, what's happening is something they can play with. And so I think that's the point that Luke is making here, that what Luke wants us to see is that the church is that place where the Spirit of God is fully active, and you don't try to pull a fast one on the Spirit. You don't try to kind of be half in, and half out. Um, and you certainly don't consent with each other to, um, 
to lie to the apostles. Because again, the power of the apostolic authority is something that Luke wants to emphasize. And so that is the sin that Luke is trying to recount. Now, whether or not you buy that, and even if it is a sin, whether or not you think the punishment meets the crime, uh, I leave that to you. So I'll go ahead and stop there. Mary Healy, okay, what are your so, thoughts? Um, my, what, is, what I find interesting is, so when I was looking at your question, which said, uh, why do you think that is, that they didn't get a second chance? I first, my first thing was um, to use them as an example, but I thought that's a little bit harsh, but it is because they don't, it's not that they don't even get a second chance. They don't even get time to know that, to, 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 to understand what they've just been told. They die immediately. I mean, and I think that that in itself, that again, I'm like, whoa, which is why this story for a lot of us is like, <laughs> it's a great story, but, but the, the, it's, I mean, it says, how have you not, you, you did not lie to us, but to God. And then he heard these words and fell down and died. And same with her. As soon as she hears that his, her, he's dead and they've come and taken her, she dies immediately. Um, so, so the mandate or this example of living in the spirit of God is for the, seems like it might be for the rest of the community, but that's pretty harsh. Well, yeah. You know, this is, it's not like Peter killed them. These, these people, you know, so it's like God's punishment or else someone's lying, you know, so, so, uh, which seems rather harsh and it's an old Testament kind of punishment. Unlike, you know, unlike anything you see in the new Testament anywhere else. Which, yeah. So in the notes, in the background of this story. So again, remember what Luke is doing, he is trying to draw threads between the past and the present and to do that in a very nuanced way. Um, you know, because again, for Luke, this is the fulfillment of an ancient story. This isn't a new story. It's not a break. And so we have that story in the Old Testament. I have this in your notes about um, a man by the name of Achan. That's A-C-H-A-N. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but Essentially, he uh, spots this beautiful mantle uh, and uh, a bar of gold and silver, and he coveted them and took them and, you know, hid them in his tent. And then God finds out about this, and Joshua has to go to the whole community, and basically Achan and his family are discovered to have stolen these things, and Achan and his family are punished. They die, uh, and the rest of the community can then move on. And, um, you know, this is one of those stories that we read in Joshua, and it's uh, challenging, it feels primitive, it feels harsh. But of course, in the theology of the day, and in Joshua's experience, there was this whole idea of cleansing, that holiness was this dangerous thing. Like in the Bible, holiness is not so much the spirit coming down into our hearts and giving us peace, but it's more like this nuclear power. It's electric. And sometimes it has a very gentle face. It can be a still small voice, but the other side of it is it's this very like powerful thing. And, and many of the old Testament kind of theological understandings that whenever something corrupted the clan, there almost had to be like a cleansing. You have to like remove the cancer, exercise the tumor, get it out of the body, and then the, you know, things can move forward. Now, I don't think that's how Luke sees this. It's how Joshua saw it. It's how the book of Joshua understood it. It's how other prophets understood things, kind of getting rid of the, the filth in the community so that the holiness can continue. But I don't think this is how Luke understands it. But I do think Luke is connecting the story of Ananias and Sapphira to the story of Achan in the Old Testament in order to say there is a connection between what's happening here. And then he's kind of reinterpreting it, um, not so much about cleansing the community, but about highlighting the power of the spirit. Now, again, it doesn't make the story any more palatable um, and it doesn't make it any less confusing. But I think it's important to say that Luke is not... Um, that what Luke is doing here is a little bit more nuanced than what you see in the Old Testament. 
Well, I always thought that if they had gone to the apostles and said, look, we sold our property, but we need some of that money uh, for whatever reason, that that what they gave to the community would have been perfectly acceptable. And the fact that they felt like they had to hide their actions from the leaders, I always thought was the worst part of the story, that they, they didn't trust their leaders enough to understand their particular situation. I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt that they had some real need not to turn over the full amount of the money. And all they had to do was say so. Maybe I'm way well, off but, base on you this. Know, but but maybe, maybe to... they wanted to be big shots, you know. <laughs> right. They wanted to look more important. I mean, I don't know. That's a good point. So we'll hold that. I think that's, that's something to comment on. Kay, I want to hear from you. I just, you know, this story just doesn't bother me at all. I, um, I love Old Testament. I find the Old Testament to be more interesting than the New Testament, to be honest. But I trust that God got what they could or could not, the kind of difficulty they could or could not uh, inflict on the group. And I just trust that God knew what he was doing and they needed to not be part of this group. I'm sorry, I know that's horrible, but it just doesn't bother me. I, so, so first of all, I think that's a refreshing perspective. It, you know, it's okay just to be like, you know, yeah, it happened. <laughs> and it doesn't bother me. I mean, I think that's also a fine perspective to have. And I think this is a good illustration that we all encounter these stories a little bit differently. Um, and I think that's that's perfectly valid, Barbara. Um, nowhere does it say that you know uh, the Holy Spirit or God or Jesus smote these people. It's just that they dropped, and you know, right. who among us, <clears throat> especially when we were little, when you're caught in a lie, I mean, you didn't want the floor to swallow you up on the spot. Um, you know, maybe it was their own grief. I mean, it's a story. Well, first of all, yeah. that's a very, yeah. very important observation. Nowhere in the text does it say that God killed them, nor does it say that Peter killed them, right? So I think that's really important. And what, what your comment raises for me, Barbara, is how we often read these things through our fear, and we add these extra things to the text. Um, oh, God's going to kill them for not being honest. God's not fair. Yeah, you know, we we add these things with how we interpret these things through what we fear. But it actually doesn't say that God killed them, nor does it say that Peter killed them. It says they dropped down and died, and Peter knew it was going to happen. That's a different thing. Well, see, they needed their money for their heart conditions. Yeah. <laughs> they, they needed their heart. They were have open heart surgery. <laughs> so let me, let me just kind of draw, draw out a little bit, because again, this is, this is a tough story. Um, you know, as to your point, Jackie, they could have done that. They could have gone to Peter and said, so Peter, we're kind of struggling with this. We kind of want to be in, we kind of want to be out, but this is what we're thinking. Can you offer some godly counsel? But that's, they didn't, they didn't do that. It says they consented with one another and they sold a land and they lied, right? And so, um, so even though they could have done that, they didn't do that. And I think that that's just important to note. I think reading this, you know, because scripture can be read through many different, angles. We can look at it historically. We can look at it symbolically. We can look at it figuratively. But I think, you know, looking at it uh, figuratively, I think one of the things Luke is trying to highlight is that life is being all in with this movement. Death is holding back. And I don't mean like physical death. I don't mean you're going to drop dead. I, I, I just mean that like Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. That's what Jesus said he came to offer. I came to offer your life. 
And what I see these two doing is something that I try to do all the time, which is to compartmentalize my life and to make faith a portion of it, right? I got my family, I've got my job, I've got my interests, I've got my hobbies, I've got my financial plans, I've got my friends, I've got my whatever. And then I've got my faith, right? We make faith a part of our life rather you know, our faith is like a planet orbiting the sun rather than the sun around which everything else orbits. And that's what they're trying to do, right? They're going to say, yeah, you know, I'm going to give a portion um, to this. And I think what Luke is saying is it's not really an option. I, I think if, if that's what you're doing, you're missing what's happening here, just like the leaders that Peter and John will criticize, that what's actually happened here is the fulfillment of the ancient covenant to Abraham, that this nuclear power of the spirit is exploding with this new movement, and that it's not something to play around with. It's something to be all in about. And I think that's really also Luke's concern is to highlight the centrality. I mean, you know, so for Luke, what he's telling is not like a portion of history page 327 and the 1,000-page history book, but rather it is the story in which all history makes sense. And so I think that's kind of the um, grounds for the um, astonishing thing that happens with people dropping dead. I mean, he, he wants us to bother you. He wants it to grab your attention. He wants it to unsettle you because if it doesn't impact you that way, then you're not looking at the movement closely enough from Luke's perspective. <laughs> oh, no, I like it. I like, I, I, okay. Maybe I like boundaries, you know, and I, I like it when everything isn't gray. I mean, I love gray too. I mean, don't get me wrong, but I, you know, I can handle decisiveness. <laughs> I think it's great. But I know, I know. Um, well, I think it's good to be reminded. Yeah. Since I'm talking, there's many interpretations to this. So many of them are, are, are very good and healthy. Okay, I'm going to stop. Who is about to speak? Someone oh, was about to say something. Say. I was the one who brought up God killing them and then, you know, and now I feel bad, but cause obviously, you know, they, boy, you'd have to be really, really conflicted to just up and die when you're confronted with your, you know, wrongdoing, which you, which part of that. So, so two things, this has been such a good conversation. Two things I want to say. Um, uh, one of them's a joke. One of them's not a joke. Uh, the one that's not a joke is um, I think it's important to remember that the early church would not have studied the book of Acts the way that we are studying the book of Acts. They wouldn't have met via Zoom once a week to take passages out of context and unpack them. Rather, they would have all been together and someone would have read it out loud in one sitting, right? And so they would have heard the story of the man healed at the beautiful gate, a blind man, a lame man who can now see and walk and leap and praise God. They would have immediately followed that up with the temple authorities. And then they would have heard the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And so whereas kind of, you know, that healing of the man at the beautiful gate is old news for us, right? We studied that last week. For the people who would have heard this in the original context, it wasn't old news. It happened 45 seconds ago, right? Because it's all being read in one sitting. And so part of what's also happening, because this was meant to be performed orally, not broken out and read in parts, is that there's also comparisons that Luke wants us to make between the man who was dead and now has life, and the couple who thought they had life, and now they're dead. Are you with me? The man at the beautiful gate was dead, but he believed, and now he has life. 
Ananias and Sapphira, you know, they're wheeling and dealing on their own, thinking they're alive, and it turns out they're dead. And so there's a lot of irony and juxtaposition that's also happening whenever you read this out loud in one sitting. And then, of course, the joke is, is um, stewardship season's coming up, you know, and uh, whenever you think about what you think <laughs> St. Michael's, um, that's not lie to the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to kill you. God's not going to kill you. But every once in a while, people do drop dead. So um, that's just a joke. Go ahead, Gail. Well, this, you know, I'm still looking for the grace in this story. But then I started thinking about Luke. And there's a lot of stories about uh, money and possessions in, in Luke. And I don't know if this same audience would have heard any of those because of the oral tradition. But the other thing is, it seems to me now that this couple was so full of pride. They were trying to present like they were really good and it, they had too much hubris and they really weren't being honest. Gail, that is a great, great point. And I want to highlight two things. I know we're running out of time. Number one is um, that Luke uh, is very concerned with money. He just is. And so if you read Luke Acts more so than anyone else, he is concerned with money and what we do with it. He calls the Pharisees lovers of money in Luke chapter 16. And so that's just like in the background of his agenda. He is very, very concerned with money and what we do with it. And so that's a very helpful reminder to read this in that context. But the other about pride, what does this remind you of? Tell me what this reminds you of. But a man named Ananias with the consent of the woman, his wife, Sapphira, did this bad thing. What does that remind you of? Abraham and Sarah. Adam and said, Eve. Adam and Eve. <laughs> Adam and Eve. Yeah. Adam and Adam Eve. And Eve. Adam and Eve. Are you ready for this? Yeah. To draw out even further implications. Are you ready for this? And the book of Matthew, when Jesus tells his genealogy, Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus back to Abraham. But do you know who Luke traces the genealogy back to? Adam. Adam. Yeah. So the other thing, and I had this in my original notes, but I didn't bring it up. Um, but I think you pointed this out, is that this is a multi-layered story here. So this story of Ananias and Sapphira, go cross-reference that with the story of Adam and Eve, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good mm -hmm. and evil. And mm -hmm. that's going to add a whole new layer to kind of what's happening here uh, in this story as well. And I don't think that that parallel is an accident. I think it's on purpose. And I think the language with the consent of his wife is meant to draw us back to that, star, that story in Genesis chapter three. As we go, let me just leave you with one verse because um, it's ultimately up to you kind of what you do at this story. But I think the final verse is very important. It says, in great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. Great fear seized the church. The fear of the Lord or the fear of scripture is not terror. It's not panic. It's not the type of fear and anxiety that you and I know all too well in our daily life, but the fear is being seized by this sense. It's something much bigger than us, much bigger than our ego, much bigger than our personal wants and desires, much bigger than our plans and ambitions, much bigger than the plans we devise for ourselves. That something much, much bigger is happening and we're invited into it and it's something powerful. And so it's like this, this fear seizes us when we realize that, oh, life is not a game. God is real. Something big is happening. And I think ultimately, the, the, the reason Luke sums up this story with great fear seizing the church, it's his hint that that's ultimately what he wants you to feel. He wants great fear to seize you, not panic, not anxiety, not terror, but like that holy, oh my God. Life is miraculous. God is on the move. Something big is happening, and I better pay attention to that. And that's ultimately, I think, regardless of what you make of the story, that's the reason Luke tells it. He wants that sort of fear to take hold of our life, that good fear that leads to transformation.